The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Yeah, so we're in Matthew 1 this morning and we are starting our, our Advent series. We're starting our, our time in, in, in our Christmas series. Uh, and what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to begin and end in Matthew chapter 1. But uh, in the middle of the sermon today, we're going to take a detour to Isaiah chapter 7. So if you are the kind of person who wants to put a finger there at Isaiah 7 or a bookmark or something, we're going to flip to there pretty soon. Uh, for the next few weeks, we're going to be just looking at this infancy narrative. We're going to look at the, the birth narrative of Jesus Christ, how Jesus came into the world. And so um, <clears throat> this week and the next week and then one after that, we're going to be in the book of Matthew. And then uh, for our Christmas Eve service, which like Jared said, is an afternoon service, um, we're going to be in, in, Luke chapter, in, in, uh, in Luke's gospel there as well. So let's pray and then we'll commit our time to the Lord. Lord Jesus, we do want to commit this time to you, that actually we, we want to be wholeheartedly devoted to you. We want to worship you this morning, Lord, as we spend this time in your word. Father, we want to be drawn to your glory and to your majesty, Lord. Father, we ask that you would be glorified this morning. I, my, my prayer, Lord, is that you would be glorified this morning. Holy Spirit, that you would make much of the Father and make much of Jesus this morning in our hearts. We ask, God, that whatever we've face this, this last week, whatever trials we've walked through or whatever, whatever um, uh, enjoyable experiences we've walked through, Lord, we ask, God, that above all things that you will be glorified and magnified in our, in our hearts and in our minds, Lord. So, Jesus, as we spend this time in your word, we ask that you would lead us through it and guide us through it, Father. We love you, Jesus. Amen. The greatest um, problem that every single person in the world has in his or her life is the sin that has separated us from God. If you've been here with us before, you've most likely heard me say something something like that. The greatest problem that we face is the sin that has separated us from God. And I don't say that lightly. I don't say that in any kind of trivial sense. I know that for each one of us, we are walking through, many of us are walking through difficult terrain at the moment. It might be health-related, health issues. It might be financial issues. It could be relational issues, issues that loom large on the horizon, issues that feel big for us. And yet, I I still want to, I don't want to trivialize those things, but I still want to make the case that the greatest problem that we each have is the sin that separates us from God. There's nothing more significant in terms of a problem that we have in our lives than that. Every single one of us was born under the curse of sin. And we continue to fall back into sinful patterns, sinful habits, sinful behaviors. And this doesn't happen without our knowledge. Our sin isn't just written on a list somewhere far away that, un- that is there kind of unbeknownst to us. Actually, the, the sin is felt in our hearts. It, it's felt in our hearts in the form of guilt and shame and regret and, and sadness. 
It's almost as if our hearts are keeping a ledger of our sin. And we feel these effects of having sin when our consciences are seared or when we look back at past mistakes, past failures with regrets. When we look back with regret on how we treated somebody or how we did something that we know didn't honor the Lord. We feel this weight of guilt, this weight of shame, it presses upon us. And more and more as I grow in my faith and my understanding of Christ and the more I speak to other people about this, the more and more I'm convinced that guilt and shame play a huge underscore in a lot of people's lives. It's a motivating thing for people in their lives. And sure, different people, different religions, whether you're, you might be, might be here and calling yourself an atheist, we have different moral values, but we still know that feeling. You don't have to be a Christian or a believer to know that feeling of guilt and shame. If you're feeling, uh, sorry, if you're not a Christian, that feeling comes in the knowledge of sin. If, if, sorry, if you're here and you're not a Christian, that feeling is that there's something not quite right in our lives, that there's a, an, an important puzzle piece not that hasn't yet fallen into place. And if we're not turning to God to solve that for us, if we're not turning to Him to, to remedy those feelings of guilt and shame, we'll turn to just about anything else and just about everything else to fill that void. And that might be in relationships. And we might become convinced that what we need is a, a romantic, significant, um, significant romantic partner who will make you feel all right. Or it could be in possessions and, and you're lured back to the plaza or you're lured back to Amazon to, to spend more money on things that you hope will plug that hole for good. It could be in the accumulation of, of wealth and money or experiences or in social status or in careers or whatever where, where we look to these things in the hope that they will fill that hole, fill that void in our lives. And we might get those things that we're after. We might get those things that we pursue. And it might make us feel good for a time. But those things won't last because those things were never meant to satisfy us. The fact that we have eternal appetites that can't be satisfied by anything here on earth is, is a strong, is strongly suggests that we were made for something eternal. You see, when we're searching for, for something to fill that void, for something to make us feel right again, what we're searching for is God. When we keep spending more and more money on stuff that we don't particularly need, we're actually searching for God. When, we, when you hope that another person might make you feel better about yourself, you're actually searching for God. When you're endlessly posting pictures of yourself or your kids or, or things that you do online in the hope that you'll be validated and congratulated, you're actually searching for God. And if you're here and you're a Christian, there's a good chance that you've used religion to fill that void aside from God. That you've kind of, it can be very easy for us to fill our lives with religious activities in the hope that by reading our Bible more or by praying more or by serving more or by giving more or by donating to charity or whatever it is, that if we just do a bunch of things, then we'll feel good. Then the guilt and shame will actually go away. We're not actually going to Jesus himself to make us righteous. We're going to religious activity and performing religious works in order to make us feel righteous. What this passage is going to do for us today is going to, it's going to announce to us that the search is now over. You don't have to keep 
looking for that one more thing to make you feel happy or satisfied or content or to give you significance because God has already given that to us in Jesus Christ. And we can detect this wonderful truth by looking at a couple of things in this passage. Firstly, by looking at the names that are given to Jesus here. I'm not, I'm not sure if you, you pick that up, but actually Jesus is given two names here. There's the name Jesus and there's also the name Emmanuel. And these names mean something. It's also, we can detect this, in the fact that um, what took place in this story was actually the finishing off of another story that took place around 500 years earlier. Matthew says in verse 22 that all of these things took place to fulfill an earlier prophecy. And by going back to that prophecy, by going back to what Matthew was quoting there, we'll see why our search for meaning and happiness is over when we come to Jesus. Why, why that search for something to, to put that, that our enemy or put our sin to death and to get rid of that, that that is actually over when it comes to Jesus. You see, one of the great challenges for us as Christians is that we can fall into the trap of hedging our bets with Jesus. That is, we, we come to Jesus and we say, yes, I'm going to trust in you, Jesus, but just in case, I'm also going to make sure that I'm a, I'm a really good person and, and, I'm, and I obey the Lord. I, I'm going to put a little bit of faith in my ability to keep God's law. I'm going to, just, just in case... This whole Jesus thing doesn't work out. I'm going to make sure that I'm still like, you know, above reproach with other things. I'm going to make sure that my Bible reading is up to scratch. I'm going to make sure that, um, you know, I'm praying lots. I'm going to make sure that I'm doing all these things for God just in case, it got, just in case my sin is particularly bad and God needs something else other than Jesus. And we, we hedge our bets with Jesus. We don't go all in on him. We, we save a little bit for our own works. This, this passage is going to say, no, no. Put everything on Jesus. Put everything on him. So the story goes here that Mary falls pregnant. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she falls pregnant outside of wedlock. And this would have been a massive scandal in that day. And Matthew doesn't try and cover that up or, or gloss over that. In fact, if you just kind of go through this, this passage verse by verse, you, you'll see that either the controversy of this or just the impact that it had on other people is mentioned in just about every single verse here. It's constantly bringing up the fact that uh, the, the, the impact and the effects of Mary being pregnant outside of wedlock. Now, uh, her, her fiancé, Joseph, he was a righteous man, and so he resolved uh, to divorce her quietly and not bring her, um, not open her up to public, pu public ridicule and shame. But then, as we saw in the play earlier, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and assured him that this baby was actually from the Holy Spirit and that Joseph was to continue with the marriage. He was to raise this boy as his own and name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, names were really important back then. We, we heard a little bit about Adelia's name, but names were hugely significant back then. To, to name uh, your child, it was often because you wanted your child to be uh, a particular character trait, to, to uh, occur in that child's life. Or, or maybe uh, that child was born amid circumstance, uh, certain circumstances or conceived amidst certain circumstances, and so they are named after those particular circumstances. Here, he is given the name Jesus. And it's interesting that the angel says, you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from, his sin, from their sins. 
That word Jesus is the, uh, the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua or Jeshua. And it, that name Joshua means God is my salvation. Jesus' name is he is the one who is going to take away sins. He is the one who will bring God's salvation to pass. He is going to be, save the people from their sins. And as Matthew was writing out this story, by the working of the Holy Spirit in his mind, Matthew realizes that this is not just an isolated event. This is not just a cool thing that's going on here and there. This is actually, like I said earlier, the finishing of another story. This is the fulfillment of a prophecy from around 500 years earlier, from the book of Isaiah, which said, See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And a really great principle of reading God's words, we're reading through the Bible, is if you see, in the, especially in the, in the New Testament, if you see an Old Testament passage referenced or uh, even quoted uh, word for word, it's a really great idea to turn to that passage if you can find it and that read the surrounding chapters and the surrounding verses to give you, because that's going to shed a whole lot more light on the passage that you're reading then and there. It's, it's, if you've got one of those Bibles that has like those footnotes and it shows you where this is actually like reference points and it can take you back to other parts of the Bible, my encouragement as you're reading through God's Word is to follow, those, follow that trail, follow those breadcrumbs, follow to see where... Because that New Testament uh, author, whoever is writing it at that time, they are writing that for a reason and they are referencing that for a reason. And so this morning, we're going, to go, we're going to follow those breadcrumbs back. We're going to go back to Isaiah 7, where this prophecy was originally spoken. So let's go back to Isaiah 7 now. And when you look at this, this particular passage, and, and more light is shed on the, the circumstances around Isaiah 7, um, if you look at 2 Kings chapter 16, that's also there as well. Uh, you'll see there that Isaiah was speaking. Isaiah was uh, he's the prophet of God. He was speaking to Judah's king Ahaz. Now, out of all of the kings of Judah, Ahaz, in Judah's speckled history, Ahaz is probably amongst the worst of them. If you go and you look at uh, 2 Kings chapter 16, it says there that Ahaz did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, um, his God, like his ancestor David, but walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even sacrificed his own son in the fire. Now, from what I can gather, Ahaz is the first king of Judah to do such a despicable practice. He is the first king of Judah to actually sacrifice his own son in the fire to the, god, to the, to the false god, Moloch. Now, at this point in time, that Isaiah is prophesying this to Judah, Judah and to King Ahaz, Ahaz and Judah were in a very difficult situation. Much earlier in Israel's history, the people of God, the Israelites, had, had gone through a really horrible civil war and the country split in two, where the nation in the north um, retained the name Israel and the nation remaining, remaining um, uh, down below in the south uh, holding on to the name Judah. And generally speaking, the kings of Judah, they were the ones who were descended from David. Uh, Judah was where Jerusalem was. And generally speaking, the kings of Judah were kind of okay. You had some really fantastic kings in, in, as be, being the kings of Judah, and they were all from the line of David. But then when you follow the kings of Israel in the north, they were all pretty much terrible right from day dot, and none of them really followed the Lord, and they weren't from the same family. The, the different generals came up and, and supplanted other kings, and so uh, the kings of Israel were generally pretty terrible. 
But this is, we're talking about Ahaz here, and he's one of the kings of Judah, but I think probably the worst king Judah ever had. And Ahaz and Judah were facing this difficult situation uh, that, that the nation in the north, Israel in the north, which if you're reading through Isaiah and this particular part of Isaiah, uh, Israel is referred to as Ephraim in this bit. Ephraim or Israel had formed an, an alliance with another huge nation named Syria, which is referred to as Aram in your translations potentially. And Aram and Ephraim, or Syria and Israel, had formed this alliance together. The, the king of Syria um, had, had entered into um, Israel, and they were besieging Judah, and they were harassing Judah, they were terrorizing Judah, and things were really looking really bad for the southern kingdom of Judah and for Ahaz. And so God sends Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, to speak to King Ahaz, and really to encourage King Ahaz, um, and encourage the people of Judah. You see, even though Ahaz was this absolutely terrible king who, who sacrificed his own son in the fire, God, in his patience and in his faithfulness to the covenant that he made with David, still wanted to save and preserve his people. He wanted to save and preserve the line of David for his name's sake. And so Isaiah brings this prophetic word to Ahaz. He is sent by God to come and speak to Ahaz. And it says in chapter 7, verse 4, Calm down. And be quiet. I mean, it's almost as if God comes to Ahaz and says, sit down and shut up. Like, just stop for a second, Ahaz. Sit down and shut up. God says, don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks. The fierce anger of Rezin and Aram. Rezin is the king of Aram in this particular moment. And the son of Ramalia, which is, uh, his name is Pekah. That's the king of Israel. So there's names and there's nations all over the place. We've just got to stick with the story here. We've got to keep our eye on this. In other words, God is saying to King Ahaz, don't cower to these guys. Their forces are spent. They are smoldering sticks. They're kind of like a couple of cigarette butts that are just about done. Don't be threatened by these guys. And really God's message in verse 7 is, uh, it, it is in verse 7, which is, it will not happen, it will not occur. This alliance between Israel and Syria in the north that are coming to besiege Judah, Ahaz, it will not happen. It will not occur. Your enemies are not going to have victory. They are not going to beat you. Their victory is not going to happen. And he goes on to explain why in verses 8 and 9. He essentially says, they're just people. At the center of these kingdoms are just mere men. God is not threatened by these two kings. He's not threatened by King Rezin. He's not threatened by King Pekah of Israel. God is not threatened by any person on earth. There is no power or might or strength that even remotely holds a candle to God. Every single person who opposes God, is opposing infinite power and knowledge. If the entire world right now was to band together and sum up all of their forces and, and, and every army on, on earth was to gather against God, they would be less of a threat than a match in the wind. They hold nothing to God. God is supreme. God is everlasting. He is the infinite, powerful God of the universe. And God wants Ahaz to know this because he wants Ahaz, this evil king, to trust him as God. 
He doesn't want Ahaz to go and find an alliance somewhere else. He doesn't want Ahaz to put his trust anywhere else. He wants, to, he wants Ahaz to come and trust in him and to treat God as God, allow God to be God. And so he says in verse 9, Ahaz, if you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. In other words, you're going to need to lean on me for this one, Ahaz. If you do, you'll stand, you'll be fine. But if you don't, you've got no hope of standing against these, uh, against your enemies. And then God does something for Ahaz that is really quite rare in God's word. He says in verse 11, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. He's saying, ask for proof that I will be an ally that you can trust in. Ask anything you want. Ask for any kind of sign you want, Ahaz. Seriously, name anything and I will do it just to prove to you that I am God and that you should worship me as God. And it can be an totally outlandish, eternally irrational thing. Name a sign, I'll do it. So that you know that I can be trusted to deal with your greatest problems. But Ahaz remained hardened in his position against the Lord and he refused. He says in reply, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. Now his, his response there sounds somewhat pious. Like, I'm not going to test the Lord. Like that's, that's obeying one of the laws from Deuteronomy. But, but really what he, he's doing, he's using religious language to cover up his personal quest for self-exaltation. He, he's using uh, God's commands to say, oh, listen, I, I'm not going to actually trust in you, God, because I'm going to rely on, on myself. I'm not going to rely on my own obedience here. The, the American pastor, Ray Altman, puts it like this. He says, Ahaz prefers dismay and hand-wringing. He feels more normal, frantically devising his own salvation and lusting for the success of his own plans rather than delighting in the victory of God. His heart is hard. Here's what I think we're meant to do with this guy Ahaz. We're meant to see ourselves in him. We... We're meant to see how easy it is for us not to trust in God. We're meant to see how easy it is to put our trust in something or someone else, to devise our own salvation, to come up with this, uh, I'm going to retain control, I'm going I'm to sort of trust in Jesus, I'm going to kind of mostly trust in him, but I'm going to hedge my bets, I'm going I'm, I'm to still rely on what I can do for God rather than fully trusting in what he has done for me. And we know we're thinking like this when we begin to not return to the Lord when we are walking in guilt and shame. Because we think it's up to us to clean up our act before we can come to Him. When we struggle to come before the Lord in our guilt and shame, it's often because of the fact that we are going, hey, I'm trusting myself here. I'm not good enough to come to Him. Actually, it's in our guilt and shame that we come to the Lord. This is what Ahaz does. He rejects God and he goes and he makes an alliance with an even bigger kingdom. An even bigger kingdom that can handle the Syrians. So he goes to King Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria. Now if you're reading through the Old Testament, particularly in this part, there are two nations here, Syria and Assyria. Two separate nations here. It can be easy to get confused between those two, but they're two separate nations. 
And you can read in 2 Kings 16 that Tiglath police of Assyria comes along and he kills King Rezin of Iran and he kills, sorry, he, he makes King Pekah of Israel his vassal. So at least in Ahaz's mind, his plan has worked. King Tiglath Pileser of Assyria has come along, he's destroyed Rezin, he's taken um, Pekah as his servant. But that wouldn't prove to be a good decision long term. As you read on in 2 Kings, it becomes clear that Assyria turns into a much greater problem for Judah than the alliance between Israel and Syria. One commentator put it like this. The little mouse has been bullied by two rats. So he squeaks to the cat to come and save him, not thinking through that he himself will become the cat's dessert. Ahaz doesn't trust that God will be good for him. He'd much prefer to trust in his own devices and the things that he can see and touch. How often do we do this? How often when we feel the pinch of our sin, when we know for sure that we're not right with God, how often do we, do we go to someone else, or go to something else to take away the guilt and shame? It might be that we, go, that we resort to some substance or to some product to get rid of the pain, or we go to some dysfunctional relationship to wash us clean. We might have even become like Ahaz about it and become more religious about it, thinking that what we need to do is, oh, I've, I've sinned, I've, I've fallen short of the glory of God, I've, I've done the wrong thing, so what I need to do now, God won't accept me until I've actually sorted this out again. God, I need to get rid of these dark feelings of guilt and shame, so I'm just going to read the Bible until the guilt goes away. Just two more chapters, then the, then the darkness will have gone. I'm just going to pray for 20 minutes and, and that way I'll start to feel better about myself. I, I just need to, to do more for God then, then, then this feeling of guilt and shame will actually go. And we don't rely on the grace of God for us. We instead rely on what we can do for Him. What we need to do is to go to His open arms and rest in what He has done for us. This is the, this is the mistake that Ahaz made. And, and so God says, fine, if you're not going to ask for me a sign, a sign from me, that's fine. But I'm going to give you a sign anyway. I'm going to show you that I am the God who can be trusted to deal with your greatest problems. And he gives the sign in verse 14. He says, see, the virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel. But by the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. So this is the prophecy that Matthew is quoting in Matthew chapter 1. This is the, that's the context. That's everything that's behind when Matthew says, See, the virgin will conceive. But before we race back to Matthew, we've got to understand that that prophecy from Isaiah still meant something to King Ahaz and to the people of Judah. It wasn't that, you know, I'm going to give you a sign and you're not going to, this sign will be meaningless to you, but it'll mean everything to a whole lot of people in about 500 years. No, it still actually is an important thing for them here in Ahaz's lifetime. And if you turn the page to Isaiah chapter 8, uh, the prophet Isaiah there, has, uh, he's intimate with his wife, and, God, and he, they, she falls pregnant, and God tells him to name his son Mehershalel Hashbaz. Mehershalel Hashbaz, which means something along the lines of the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. Or, or, or put it a little bit more simply, quick pickings, easy prey. Imagine a wolf hunting a chicken. 
It's going to make easy work of that chicken. A wolf will easily take down a chicken. That's what this little boy's name, Isaiah's son, that's what his name means. That God is going to make very short work of Judah's enemies by the time that Isaiah's son was a toddler. And this is what happened. God did use Assyria and to take, out, take care of the threat against Judah. But because Ahaz didn't trust in God, Assyria becomes a far bigger problem for Judah than the enemies that she vanquished. Here's what's important here. When Matthew writes, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, he's not just saying, isn't it cool that Mary was a virgin? Or he's not just saying Jesus is the result of a prophecy from 500 years earlier. He's expecting that we'll go back and we'll read that prophecy and understand what this is actually about. He's saying this baby is finishing that story. This baby is finishing the story of King Ahaz and, and the Syrians and the Israelites and the Assyrians around them. This baby is finishing that story. This son who would be born to a virgin through whom, would, him, through, through whom God would make easy pickings of our enemies. He's saying this is the baby who would completely remove our enemies from us. So who is our enemy that Jesus is going to take care of? And the answer is in his name. Matthew says, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The promise to Ahaz was partially fulfilled in the destruction of his enemies. But the, the, promise, so the, the promise to Ahaz was completely fulfilled in the destruction of our greatest enemy, our sin. Jesus came as a baby to save us from our sins. Our greatest enemies, the greatest problem that we all face, the sin that has separated us from God, there is nothing on earth that we can do about it in and of ourselves. We need someone else to take care of that sin. And how will God achieve that victory against sin? Will, will, will he stand at a distance like some kind of puppeteer? No, the answer is, is again in his name. They will call him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. The way that Jesus freed us was by coming close. By coming to us as a person. He is with us. That's what Emmanuel means. He is with us. He came in flesh and bone to stare down sin and death. He came to destroy our greatest enemy, which is sin. And, and, he, and he destroyed death, not by dealing a, a death blow to, to death itself, but actually by receiving death's blow, by being struck down himself. Jesus stood in our place and he absorbed the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And the invitation in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, is to fully trust in him and not to put our hope and our trust into some other ally. There is not an ally on earth that can save us from our sin. Nothing, that we can, we, nothing will truly eradicate the feelings of guilt and shame except for the knowledge that Jesus has taken away our guilt and shame. The invitation of this passage is to come and fully trust in Jesus. Not partially, not mostly, but fully. To bring our guilt and shame to him and know that he takes away our sin. To trust him with our guilt and shame. Trust him with the worst part of us. You see, faith in Jesus isn't about coming to Jesus on your best behavior or in your best day. 
but with your worst. It's not to trust, it's, it's not just to entrust with Jesus the best parts of us or the best version of us where we kicked butt. We also need to entrust to Jesus the days that we're ashamed of. The days to, to hand over to him our failures, to hand over to him our mistakes, to hand over to him our regrets and our mess. In the same way that God offered victory to Ahaz, the worst of all the kings, God offers this to us, not because we're better than Ahaz, but because we're not. And God's promise to us is that he can be trusted with that very vulnerable part of ourselves. Jesus won't shame us. He won't laugh at us. He won't recoil because of us. He won't hesitate at us. That he will pull us into the welcoming arms, his welcoming arms, and he will wrap us up in his love. Trust Jesus with the very worst parts of us. Don't hedge your bets on Jesus. Go all in on him. Make it so that if the gospel turns out to be an absolute crock, you'll look like a fool and be left with nothing. That's the extent to which we're called to trust in him. We're called to see all of our guilt and all of our shame go on to him. We're called to know that Jesus left none of it behind for us. That when he, he hung there on the cross and he absorbed God's wrath for our sin, he absorbed all of God's wrath for all of our sin. So often we can fall into the trap of thinking that God's still going to hold out on us and he, we're going to turn up there on Judgment Day and there's going to be something that we did that just... It, Jesus wasn't strong enough to take away that part of our guilt. That's a crock. That's rubbish. He completely removes us of our sin. He completely takes away our guilt and shame. So what we need to do is we need to come to him and just trust him with that. He left none of it for us. And, we, and he will give us the joy of all joys. Guilt and shame cannot survive in a heart that is delighted to be saved by Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.